Welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be your host. First off, I want to say thank you for all the support. We're happy to be creating something that you guys are enjoying. And I wanted to shout out our social medias real quick. Uh, We are Beyond the Breakers podcast on Instagram. We are beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. And we've recently launched a Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. And on that note, I'd like to say thank you, Alexis, for signing up. And also wanted to say that our podcast will always be ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, we would definitely appreciate your support. Money from the Patreon goes towards making the show, so for podcast hosting, research materials, that kind of thing. Um, With that stuff out of the way, I'll go ahead and introduce my co-host, as always, Tanner. Tanner, how you doing? Doing really good. Doing really well. I got my first jab of the vaccine yesterday. Oh, nice. Nice. I still have not gotten mine yet. I am um, not worthy in Ohio. I'm feeling powerful. <laughs> watch out. Uh, yeah, feeling good. Feeling good. So I'm happy to get that uh, that first part out of the way. Got my second one coming up uh, in three weeks. And uh, Excellent. Then I'll be a superhuman. <laughs> well, this one, this story is uh, one that I didn't think was going to be that long, but actually I ended up writing a lo- This is the longest set of notes I've done for the show. So we'll see how long this goes, but I think we should probably go ahead and get into it. You ready? I am. And I will agree. This is definitely the most notes you've written. I, uh, <laughs> I sat down to look at them and I was like, oh my God. This story is actually another um, listener submitted story. This comes from Samantha, who is a listener and an actual personal friend of mine. So it, hopefully you hear this and you enjoy it. We definitely appreciate your support. This week's story is actually going to take us to Florida, but first we'll start with the background on the ship. Today we'll be talking about the Coast Guard Cutter Blackthorn, which is an awesome name for a ship. I think we can all agree. Very cool. It's a really cool name. So the Blackthorn was commissioned in Duluth, Minnesota in 1944, built at Marine Ironworks and Shipbuilding. She is an Iris class buoy tender. And buoy tenders basically do what their name implies. Like they maintain and work on navigational aids to assist maritime operation. They work a lot around channels, harbors, inlets, that kind of thing. They also can do auxiliary stuff like ice breaking. So obviously, if you're a buoy tender that's based in Duluth, Minnesota, your job's going to be a little different than being based in Tampa, Florida. But uh, they're capable of doing quite a few different things. And the Blackthorn was actually a seagoing buoy tender, which meant she was able to work offshore. So she was made to, to actually sail out into the ocean, not only to work in like a harbor area. The Blackthorn was originally designed uh, to be an icebreaker on the Great Lakes. So she was built during World War II. And that was the original idea is to keep the harbors free of ice so we could continue to move uh, iron ore, coal, that kind of thing throughout the Great Lakes region. But immediately after that, she was transferred to San Pedro, California. She actually only stayed there a few months before being sent to Mobile, Alabama, And she finally ended up in Galveston, Texas, which is actually the port that she worked out of until the incident that we'll be discussing today. Seems like a pretty sweet change of gig if you are the vessel um, (laughs) having to go from breaking ice on the Great Lakes to uh, to California and then then the Gulf Coast, then eventually the Gulf Coast seems pretty sweet. Definitely. If you're the crew as well, I would uh, very much rather be in that warm weather. I've lived in Superior, Wisconsin, right across from Duluth. I love it. It's great. But it is a. The weather is not the best. 
So from 1979 until early 1980, the Blackthorn was actually getting an overhaul in Tampa, Florida. So the overhaul was completed on January 28th, 1980. And that is when she left the Gulf Tampa Dry Dock Company facility. So she's been laid up for you know a number a number of months, and they're finally done with the repairs, and they're ready to get underway. So this is the first time the ship is sailing in a few months. There's new crew members, that kind of thing. There's a lot of changes going on. So they departed January 28th, 1980, at around 6 p.m. Uh, she was under the command of Lieutenant Commander George Seppel. She carried a crew of 50. And conditions that night were reported as being very good for sailing, actually. Visibility was seven miles. There was basically no wave action reported. And temperatures were in the mid-60s. So ideally, like, you know, most of the stories we've talked about have been pretty nasty conditions. This is not that kind of a story. This is a pretty good day to be out on the water or a pretty good evening. That's the the boat I want to be on. I want to be on the boat (laughs) where there's little to no wave action. I want to essentially just be on land, but on a boat. You don't want to be on this boat later. (laughs) So earlier in the day during sea trials, the Blackthorn had had an issue with its main generator. And this problem was corrected upon return to the facility. But it was still a known issue to Lieutenant Commander Seppel. So it's something he's aware of. It's something that's on his mind as they're leaving to return back to uh, Galveston. As the Blackthorn departed, Lieutenant Commander Seppel retained the con to get a feel for how the ship was responding to the repairs. And by retaining the con or commanding the con, that basically means he's responsible for all commands relating to the ship's movement. It's important because you don't want multiple people giving conflicting information and being responsible for speed and navigation. So at the end of the day, all of those commands come from a central place and they get disseminated out to those that actually implement the action. That way you're not having... Uh, conflicting stuff, or you're not uh, under a moment of stress, you're not having multiple people giving out orders. So um, when, and I, I don't know if we have an answer to this question here, but so when you say here that he retained the con to get a feel for how the ship was responding, is that not normally something that he would have done? Is there someone else who normally would have had that role? Uh, it just depends. There's various different officers that are capable of doing that job. And, they, you know, you're going to rotate in shifts and stuff anyway, kind of like in the Alfaro story where, like, at one point, the second mate and the helmsman are talking. At that point, the second mate would have had the con. She's the one responsible for giving all the commands and the helmsman's doing those actions. And mm-hmm. then you would rotate watches and maybe the chief mate comes and he becomes that person. Gotcha. So it's always uh, in this case, there was probably someone else on duty. But since they're just leaving and he's checking out the repairs, he wants to be in control for now. But he can he'll basically issue an order and give that to someone else. OK, so upon departure, the Blackthorn decided a Russian passenger vessel named Kazakhstan. It was noted that the vessels appeared to be on a converging course. Seppel determined that the Blackthorn was moving faster than the Kazakhstan and there would be no risk of collision. Once he was sure of the vessel's performance, Seppel gave the con to Lieutenant Crawford. During that time, it was noticed that the shaft tachometer was not functioning properly. Seppel decided to go below, but he actually returns shortly thereafter. So he gives the con to another officer. He leaves, but he does come back fairly quickly. But just keep in mind, there's a lot of movement around the ship. There's a lot of movement on the bridge and the pilot house right now. And we've already made a note. This is a fairly busy area. They're already sighting other traffic. Mm-hmm. And they actually continue to do that. So while transiting the upper portion of Tampa Bay, the Blackthorn encounters a tug by the name of Pat B. The vessels confer via radio, and they arrange a port-to-port pass. And this is typically how vessels want to pass each other. This is how vessels should be passing each other. Just a clarification here, a port-to-port pass. So if I'm standing on the deck, 
say, at the bow of my vessel, a port-to-port pass. The other ship is passing us on the port side. So basically, like, if you're, dri- if you're driving a car, it's passing you on the left. Right, yeah. Okay. It's just that way everyone's talking with the same language, basically. So, yeah, that's all it is. They, and that's the way that, again, you generally want to do that unless there's some navigational hazard or other thing that would prevent you from doing it. You don't want the thing, like, when you're coming out of a doorway. And, yeah. Uh, you go right, left, right, left, right, left. Yeah, so. or, like, the awkwardness of, like, a roundabout when people don't know what to do and they're in the middle of it and they stop. Roundabouts are effective traffic control if everyone knows what they're doing. <laughs> that's that's how this works. As long as everyone knows what they're doing, it works really well. So uh, the problem here is that the Blackthorn is near the center of the channel. So that actually forces the Pat B to take action and move further to the right. So it's kind of one of those things where they've set it up to pass port to port. But the Blackthorn is kind of out of position to make that easily possible for the Pat B. And the vessels actually end up passing within 40 feet of each other, but neither one is affected. So there's no, you know, there's no, like, damage, there's no issues, but it's kind of like in, you see a lot of times with airliners where there's, like, it's a notable incident that there, it was mm-hmm. a, it was an issue that shouldn't, you shouldn't be that close. Mm-hmm. So that... That happens, and then the Kazakhstan, which had previously been passed by the Blackthorn, is now gaining speed and is positioning to overtake the Blackthorn. So again, you got to keep in mind, there's a lot of traffic in this area. It's pretty heavy. It's a pretty heavily traveled area. To clarify, so the Blackthorn has sort of shifted its course to get out of the way of this tug, to pass this tugboat, the Pat B, right? Well, the the Pat B is the one that actually had to shift its course. Oh, they had to shift their course. So to, the to Blackthorn is basically going down the middle of the channel, so it's mm-hmm. it's probably a little bit out of position. It should be further over, but they're not doing anything wrong inherently. Okay, and now the Kazakhstan is ahead. It's of the catching Blackthorn. up too. So, like they they're underway now. So they're okay. they're catching up to the Blackthorn. Okay. So the Kazakhstan was able to raise the Blackthorn via radio and ask that the Blackthorn move out of the channel so that Kazakhstan could pass. It's noted in the Coast Guard report that the Kazakhstan is very brightly lit. And I'll go ahead and say our favorite phrase on the show. This will be important later. Never good. Never good. Even when we're dealing with the glorious nation of Kazakhstan. (laughs) So at this time, Lieutenant uh, Crawford asked Lieutenant Commander Seppel if he could temporarily relieve him of the con. So I don't know what he had going on, if he had some other duty that he wanted to try to attend to, but he basically asked permission to be replaced. And Seppel then directs Ensign Ryan to take the con at 755. I know not everyone's super familiar with Coast Guard ranks, but Ensign is a very low-grade officer, so Ensign Ryan is a fairly new sailor. He's not someone with a lot of experience. As the vessels passed under the Sunshine Skyway Bridge, Lieutenant Crawford returned to the bridge. Even though he returned to the bridge, Ensign Ryan retained the con. So, you know, it's a situation where once you're given that job, until you're relieved, that is your job, even if there's a superior officer, you know, by you or in the pilot house or on the bridge. They can take that from you by issuing an order, but it's still yours until you're told something different. So at this point, we have an ensign who has the con and two superior officers who are there with him. Is this essentially kind of like a driver's ed situation? I mean, I think in theory, he's qualified to be doing the job. Right, right. I can definitely feel that as a junior officer, you probably feel a lot of pressure with multiple superiors standing around while you're trying to do something that you don't have a lot of experience doing. You know that you have someone with like 20 years more experience watching you do this. And it's. Yeah, and Lieutenant Commander isn't a. It's a a mid level officer rank because this is in. 
all reality of like a midsize vessel. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, he definitely still has. I don't know the career trajectory in the Coast Guard, but he definitely has at least a decade of experience. He is an experienced officer, Seppel is. Mm-hmm. So at this point, Lieutenant Commander Seppel is looking at the radar uh, screens on, on board. Because, you know, he's not actively navigating the vessel. He's able to look at other things. So he notes a large contact to the east of the Blackthorn in Mullet Key Channel near Buoy 15. As he scans the area visually, he notes that the brightly lit Kazakhstan is on the same relative bearing as that contact. Seppel moved to the chart table to refresh his memory of navigating the local waters as they prepared to exit Tampa or Tampa Bay. Sorry. Uh, immediately after clearing the Sunshine Skyway Bridge, Lieutenant Crawford asked Ensign Ryan if he had spoken to the vessel whose navigational lights were just beginning to separate from the Kazakhstans. Ryan said that he had not, and then asked Crawford to attempt to contact the vessel via radio. Ryan stated that he wanted to be free to continue to evaluate other incoming traffic. So it's important here to note that there's a couple of things happening all at once. So they realize that there's a contact out there. But they also see the, the Kazakhstan, and that's all they can see. So it's, it seems to me, and it's not necessarily stated, but it seems to me that Lieutenant Commander Seppel assumes that that contact is, in fact, the Kazakhstan. At that same time, Lieutenant Crawford's realizing that there's another set of lights separating from the Kazakhstan. Okay, so by seeing this contact, they're seeing something on their instruments that tells them that there's something there. But, mm-hmm. And then they but assume... It's the one At least one of them probably assumes it's the Kazakhstan, while the lieutenant starts to see another set of navigational lights, and he realizes there's another ship there. Mm-hmm. So Crawford called the vessel in Mullet Key, and at first he received a garbled response. This response was followed by a clear response of, coming out of Anchorage won't be in your way. Lieutenant Commander Seppel was still at the chart table when this exchange took place. Lieutenant Commander, or sorry, Lieutenant Crawford testified that Seppel then ordered him to respond, Roger, as a confirmation, although Seppel denies issuing that order in his statements. At the same time, the Kazakhstan is conversing with another vessel. So there's a lot of radio chatter going on. So keep that in mind, too. There's there's just a lot of things happening at once at this point. There's multiple vessels that are being sighted that are on the same trajectory. There's a lot of radio traffic. So the Kazakhstan is talking with the Ocean Star. They informed the Kazakhstan that they would be crossing the channel, but would leave plenty of room for the Kazakhstan to operate. So that conversation is very similar to the one that the Blackthorn just had. And you kind of have to wonder if everyone knows who they're talking to at this point. Mm -hmm. That's never actually stated, but there's just a lot of radio chatter going on. Ensign Ryan then went to obtain the bearing of the oncoming vessel, and he was doing that manually. So he had stepped away for just a second. And that's not unusual to do that. He's not far. He's not like out of command or anything. Like he's just taking that bearing. So Ensign Ryan assumed that a port-to-port pass had already been arranged by one of the (coughs) other officers on deck. Ryan then ordered the helmsman to make the course 263, but did not direct him to how quickly to bring the ship around. And that's not necessarily unusual to leave it at the helmsman's discretion. And keep in mind that Ensign Ryan is a young officer. If that helmsman is someone with a lot of experience, he's probably going to defer because he, you know, he doesn't have the experience that that person has at that job. Mm -hmm. My point in all this is there's just a lot happening on the bridge at this point. It's a very busy area. And the key thing here is that Ensign Ryan assumes that a port-to-port pass has already been arranged. He hears the radio chatter and everything. He just assumes that someone else is doing it while he's taking that bearing. And I mean, you've got two other superior officers on deck. You would assume that they're doing something at that point. But that's also a dangerous thing to assume when you're conning a vessel. Yeah, it seems seems like there's a lot of 
you know, on, on the one hand, you have someone assuming that the superior people are making sure everything is under control, and then you, I don't, maybe you have the superior people assuming that the other person is doing what they've been assigned to do and not asking questions about it. So after making this turn, Lieutenant Commander Seppel stepped onto the port bridge wing of the Blackthorn. And this is the first time that there is a visual sighting of the SS Capricorn, which is a vessel that is about to become really important to the story. This is directly taken from the Coast Guard report that when Lieutenant Commander Seppel first sighted the vessel, he yelled, where the expletive deleted did he come from? He then motioned for Ensign Ryan to continue the turn to the right. At this same time, Whistle signals were heard coming from the SS Capricorn. Seppel then yelled, full right rudder. By issuing that command, he actually takes the con from Ensign Ryan. So by issuing a directional command, and he's a superior officer, he's now in control. One interesting note is that the lookout for the Capricorn stated he was able to hear Cap or Lieutenant Commander Seppel shout this order. That's how close these vessels are when it's all first realized that there's something bad about to happen, Hmm. that the lookout on the other vessel can hear that command. Seems pretty close. A Seppel ordered standby for collision and put the engines in full back. So at this point, they know collision is imminent. At 8.11 p.m., the Blackthorn and the Capricorn collide. The ships collide port bow to port bow at a relative angle of 180 degrees. It's not quite head-on, but it's basically head-on. They kind of shear off of each other Mm -hmm. and slide along each other. This forced the Blackthorn to a 15-degree starboard list, and once she settled, she actually settled with a 5-degree port list. Both vessels continued past each other, with the Capricorn's anchor actually raking the side of the Blackthorn. It ripped into the crew compartments, it ripped into the shower and head areas of the uh, Blackthorn, and as the Capricorn decelerated, it actually towed the Blackthorn backwards at a rate that Lieutenant Commander Seppel stated he had never moved before. So you figure the engines are working to go full back still. They haven't taken those back to stop yet. And the ship's being towed. So, you know, you're moving backwards at just an unbelievable rate that would feel very unnatural. Mm, okay. Which have to be pretty scary. So that brings us to the immediate aftermath. In the immediate aftermath, 20 off-duty crew members of the Blackthorn assemble on the mess deck for damage control. General quarters alarms hadn't been sounded, but these men knew that that was the muster point. If something happened, that's where you go. That's where you go to get orders. No orders had been issued over the intercom, and the uh, overall mood was pretty much confusion and panic. You know, I mean, you're obviously, you've only been sailing now for like an hour as you left, and you're not expecting this. Uh, Fortunately, Chief Warrant Officer Miller, he was the engineering officer. He was able to determine that the ship's engine room was not taking water. He was able to basically determine, like, this isn't something that's going to be deadly right away. Like, we have time to get organized. Mm -hmm. A note of the crew composition. Six of the crew members had just reported from boot camp. This was literally their first day aboard the vessel. So you've only been on board the vessel for maybe a day. You've just gotten underway. You don't know where stuff is. You don't know how to get around. And you just came out of boot camp. I definitely don't think you expect to be in this situation right away. Yeah, I I feel like you would expect to have at least a least a little bit of time to acclimate to a, a normal day before you had something like this. Right. So back to the mess deck, uh, bosun mate Bartell is actually able to take charge of the mess area. So, you know, he looks around, he sees confusion, he sees panic and he, you know, he knows what to do. So he's going to get these guys organized. He orders the closing of open portals, damage control equipment to be broken out of storage areas. And he goes ahead and tells crew to report to general quarters. He's not going to wait for a general quarters alarm. He knows that's what that's what needs to be done. 
At one point, one man is found in the shower area, naked and mumbling about be- there being an anchor in the shower. So he's clearly in a state of shock. And at this point, machinery technician Petty Officer Literal, who found the naked man in the shower area, continues to follow the trail of destruction that the anchor leaves. It'd have to be quite a scene. I can't imagine walking into what was a shower compartment and you just find someone on the ground mumbling about an anchor. Like that would have to be yeah, very like, surreal. Yeah, like so much we talk about, it's very it has a very uh, movie-esque feel to it. You almost wouldn't believe that, honestly, if it was in a movie. Like, oh, that's like why'd they have to put that scene in there? Mm-hmm. That's kind of silly. Yeah. So he follows basically the gashes in the ship and he finds that the Capricorn's anchor has embedded itself in a bulkhead leading out of the shower area. So the anchor of the Capricorn is actually still stuck on the Blackthorn. That's, so this is, is this still while the Capricorn is dragging the Blackthorn? Yes, that's, that's why it's being drugged. That's how it's basically. dragging it, okay. Because as they struck and the Capricorn you know ran alongside of it, the anchor was actually loose and because they because they were getting ready to anchor they were basically at the end of their voyage they were preparing Mm -hmm. to anchor up so that actually gets stuck in the blackthorn and the anchor chain runs out basically and then you end up towing it so that's the scene kind of below on the uh on the blackthorn but on the bridge a mayday call is finally issued life jackets are broken out of the chart room where they're kept for bridge personnel and lieutenant commander seppel then brought the engines to stop position before moving them forward in an attempt to reach shallow water. There's some debate as to whether or not the engines were put forward. The first divers to investigate the wreck stated that the controls were at stop. And during his testimony, Seppel says he could not remember setting the controls forward. His personal notes immediately after the sinking, however, state that he did. Crew members state that they could remember seeing the propeller still spinning as the boat capsized when they were in the water, but only one man could point out what direction that they were spinning. And he stated they were spinning backwards. Mm. So it's interesting. I'm sure there's a lot going on and he may have put it in forward. He may not have, he may have thought to put it in forward and not have the time, but he's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to get the shallow water to try to beach or, you know, shoal the vessel. So that way they don't risk actually sinking. It's a lot easier to do a safety, you know, recovery mission when the boat's just sitting in 10 feet of water. Mm -hmm. So, I guess from all of that, it's assumed that putting it into the forward position would have been the good thing to do. Is that? Uh, Probably. I mean, I would say so because it shows that you're making an attempt to do something to save lives, basically. So even even though he's still stuck on this other vessel. I don't know that he knows he's stuck. Okay, so so it's it's assuming that he, he doesn't know all of the situation and that would have been the best thing to do in right in the situation that he understands. I didn't read anything about any damage reports ever being relayed to the bridge or anything okay. like that. I don't know that there was time for that, especially with the limited communications and everything. Okay. Um, but he's trying to do the right thing by getting the, the ship to shallow water. The Blackthorn then suddenly rolls to port and capsizes in under 20 seconds. So once the ship rolls, it just goes. Lieutenant Commander Seppel is still holding the pilot house controls when he shouts, Abandon ship. And they didn't even have time to issue that order over the intercom of the ship. So there was never a general order given to abandon ship. It was basically assumed that once the situation got bad enough that people would react appropriately. Because it all happens so fast. This happens extremely quickly. Another thing, as the ship rolls over, the generators damaged and lights throughout the vessel go out. So now you can imagine being trapped inside a vessel that is capsized and it's pitch black. That is like something from a horror movie. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Crew members also do not remember any of the emergency lanterns coming on. So the emergency lighting that should be lighting up to give guys a chance to find an exit isn't working properly. And also due to the sudden capsizing, life rafts were not able to be launched. Some life jackets were tossed into the water by crew. And other men who were able to reach the starboard side of the ship were actually able to climb up onto the hull as she rolled over. So they basically rolled with the ship as it capsized. This is interesting because this is this seems like yet another example of, um, you know, we have a small sample size so far on the show. But this seems like yet another example of a time when by the time you need the lifeboats, there's some reason that they are inaccessible or that they cannot be deployed. And yeah, this is kind of, I think this is probably our third one that we've talked about where, you know, in, in the situation, a lot of these things happen, you know, very, very fast. Once you're in a time where you need them, they often cannot be deployed. Yeah. And I think that's something to be said for the older style of lifeboats where, mm-hmm. I mean, you think about it from the time of like what you think of the Titanic having until 1980, when this story is happening, they're not that different. Mm-hmm. They're basically just... A, a literal little boat that you drop in the water. Right. And that's and not that different than what you would have had in the 1800s. Like, so like lifeboat technology didn't really progress. And now it's completely different with the, you know, it's more of like an escape pod almost that you get in that's dropped in the water. Mm-hmm. It's sealed. Think about like, if you've seen the movie Captain Phillips, that's yeah, what we, that yeah. takes place. In. And that it's a completely different system mm-hmm. that would be far safer. All right, so that brings us back to what's going on with the Blackthorn. Uh, many of the men in the water gather around the quarterdeck shack that's actually floating in the water. So it's just like a lightweight shack that was on the boat, and it actually had separated and was now floating. So it kind of served as a, a makeshift life raft almost. Chief Warrant Officer Miller, who we previously stated had evaluated things in the engine room, is actually able to organize this group of survivors. And he has to order men off of the hull. A lot of men don't want to leave the vessel. They're, you know, they're up on the hole. They think that they're fairly safe. But Chief Warrant Officer Miller knows that the Blackthorn's probably going down. And if you're on that hole, you're, there's a good chance you're going to get sucked under due to the suction of that ship sinking. So he orders men off and into the water. He gets men in life jackets, and he's able to take charge and have survivors support each other, which is important. Rather than everyone fighting for themselves, he's got guys helping each other. So you're using a lot less energy when you're able to kind of combine your effort and work mm-hmm. towards a common goal. All of the survivors reported issues with their life jackets. Many could not get them unbundled in the cold water. Others were unable to secure the straps. None of the survivors were able to use the leg straps. And one survivor even put his head through the armhole and was still able to use the uh, life vest. But clearly it was not as designed and you're not going to have the buoyancy that you uh, really want. If this was a, this is a situation where the weather conditions helped, where it was calm Basically, once you were off the Blackthorn and in the water, you had a pretty good chance of survival mm-hmm. because of the calm conditions. A mayday was received from the Blackthorn at 822. And at 824, the Capricorn transmitted that it had been in a collision with another vessel. When the Coast Guard station in St. Petersburg asked for more information from the Capricorn, an unidentified vessel actually broke in over, the, over that and stated that the other vessel had sunk. That vessel was the fishing ship, the Bayou. So they actually broke in, which you're not really supposed to do, but they they talked. They were basically talking over the Capricorn to give more current information. And by the uh, other vessel, they they refer to the Blackthorn. Yeah, yeah. They don't explicitly say it because they don't know who's who in this situation. But they can they state that they see that the other vessel has sunk. Mm-hmm. So in total, 14 minutes passed from collision to sinking. 
Capricorn requested that the Coast Guard Station St. Petersburg dispatch all available vessels. And at 825, the Capricorn reported that she had possibly grounded herself. It is noted that all of these communications were done in an orderly manner in the report. Once this happens, everyone is calm. Everyone's communicating properly. Even when the, the bayou breaks in over, you know, the Capricorn, it's still done in an orderly manner. They're conveying relevant and important information. Within minutes, the bayou is actually on scene. She had been following the Blackthorn out of Tampa Bay. And it's actually very fortunate. So a lot of men don't spend a lot of time in the water. It is Florida. It is Tampa Bay, but it's still January. So it's still very cold and hypothermia is a real Mm -hmm. risk. She picks up a total of 23 survivors. And obviously the crew of the bayou tries to do what they can. I mean, it's it's a small fishing boat. It's pretty crowded, but they do start giving out food, blankets, you know, warm clothes and do what they can to try to get people dry. A 41 foot utility boat from the Coast Guard station in St. Petersburg arrives on scene at 852. They're able to rescue four survivors, uh, one of those being Chief Warrant Officer Miller. And Chief Warrant Officer Miller actually refuses to leave the water until everyone else around him is uh, taken on board. And that includes one of the one of his comrades who appears to be lifeless. So Chief Warrant Officer Miller really does a good job of leadership and making sure that things are getting taken care of. And he also insists on being one of the last men pulled from the water. Capricorn is also able to launch an ore-powered lifeboat, and they do assist in the search for about two hours. They pick up some debris, but they do not pick up any survivors. I think it's an interesting note that the other vessel involved in this does still attempt to render aid, you know, that they're right. able to give. Right. Which is, I mean, kind of that old school mariner, you know, seafaring type thing of you always try to assist another vessel. Divers from Eckerd College Search and Rescue arrive about two hours after the sinking, and they're actually diving on this wreck within two hours. Like, that's that's pretty Amazing to me. It's kind of a, it's has to be a surreal thing as a scuba diver to dive on a wreck that literally was floating two hours ago. Yeah, I mean, most of the stuff we've talked about it isn't discovered or you know really located until months or years or sometimes even decades after it happens. And yeah, to be on scene that quickly with something that just happened is, uh, like you said, probably pretty surreal. So they were able to dive on the wreck and they determined that there was no sign of life within the vessel. So. Although it's rare, you do get times, especially in a capsized situation where there's an air pocket or something in the vessel. And I think you think back to like the, um, I think it was the USS Arizona at mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor where there's right. stores of you can hear men, you know, taking wrenches and stuff and pounding on the hull and they don't have a way to get to them before the air runs out. So obviously you don't want a situation like that. They did their due diligence and checked on that, mm-hmm. but they did see no signs of life. The uh, active Coast Guard search was terminated at 4.50 p.m. on January 30th. And then in total, there were 27 survivors and 23 fatalities. On February 19th, the Blackthorn was actually raised from the bottom of Tampa Bay. And on the 20th, she was towed to the Gulf Tampa Dry Dock in Tampa, Florida. After that, she was part of the investigation to determine what happened. They did damage assessments, that kind of thing. And then after that was concluded, the Blackthorn was towed about 20 miles offshore, and she was scuttled as an artificial reef. Now she's used as a dive site, fishing area, that kind of thing. So, yeah, she is actually a ship that has been sunk twice. That kind of concludes the story portion of the Blackthorn. I know it was kind of a lot to take in. There's a lot of moving parts to that one, but I think it's an interesting story. It's pretty rare that you see a Coast Guard vessel involved in something like this. Mm Mm-hmm. With that, we'll move to the discussion portion, and you want to go ahead and ask the first question that we always ask. I do, and I want to know, why? 
Why did this happen? So, according to the Coast Guard report, primary cause was the failure of both vessels to keep to the fair side of the channel, which lay to the starboard side, even though there was plenty of room to do so. So, basically, they should have moved further over within the channel, and this issue wouldn't have happened. That's the most obvious cause. That's not saying... I don't love that because I don't think that says why this happened. That's very much just says how it happened. Like it happened mm-hmm. because of this. How did we get to that point? And that's kind of the contributing factors I think are much more about how we got to that situation in the first place. Mm-hmm. And the contributing factors that are listed include that after sighting the Capricorn, the Blackthorn continued on its course. It did not use any radio or whistle communications, which confused the Capricorn's crew. Basically, Blackthorn didn't communicate its intentions. Nobody knew what it was doing. And you kind of see that earlier on in the day that things aren't clear when they pass that tug, the Pat B, and they basically pass way too close to it. It just doesn't seem like they're doing a good job of communicating their intentions. It's almost like, you know, when someone slams on the brakes and turns into a driveway and they didn't use their turn signal, like that's dangerous because you don't know what they're doing. Uh And that seems to be the case here. No one knows what the Blackthorn is doing. It seems like there's a lot of assumptions on the part of the Blackthorn of, well, the other guy's going to get out of the way. Yeah, and you have to wonder, I don't know if this is more or less common in with like military vessels, but the, is there a little bit of that that it's like, oh, we're the Coast Guard, they're just going to move? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, same with a Navy vessel, like, you know, I'm an aircraft carrier, you can get out of my way. I don't know that, that that's not necessarily discussed as an issue, but I you never know what, what's yeah, going through yeah, someone's head. I can see that. Another factor is that Lieutenant Commander Seppel failed to stay current on the situation before him. He also failed to adequately supervise an inexperienced conning officer in busy, unfamiliar waters. So you can say that Ensign Ryan is at fault. He's an, you know, he may have been the one that didn't communicate properly or, you know, work to avoid the collision. But if he's not properly trained and he's not properly monitored, whose fault is that really? You can't put someone in a bad position and then mm-hmm. blame them when it doesn't work out right. Right. And even and, even with proper training, you know, per se, um, experience also comes into it. Because, yeah, I mean, you, you can be trained all you want. And in, in a real situation like this where it is busy, it is, you know, real world a situation that's different. And I, and I think that warrants probably more close observation. After I pass my written driver's license test. You don't want to put me in the driver's seat and say, merge onto the highway. Exactly. Exactly. You still have to have practical experience in doing that thing. This is also an example of poor bridge or crew resource management, which is something I know we've talked about a couple times now, especially with the Alfaro. It's another good example of that. The conning officer, Ensign Ryan, failed to immediately inform the commanding officer of the oncoming vessel. So this goes back to the, you know, different people are seeing the same thing but differently and not communicating with each other to determine what's actually going on. That's when you've got three different officers and they're all kind of coming to the same conclusion separately, but not necessarily communicating that with each other. A port to port passing agreement was not reached due to the reliance on the radio. And I think that's where Ensign Ryan's inexperience comes in. That's where he assumes that it's already been done. And, you know, that's a dangerous assumption in this scenario. I just want to say with that, it comes back to something that we talked about. We may have talked about this with the El Faro. There's always that gray area when we talk about resource management, you know, between a subordinate and a superior of, can I keep asking about this? Can I ask questions about this? Can I keep doing this? Like, do I seem too inexperienced if I keep on pressing this issue? It just, it just really interests me, the human interaction here, where, you know, in theory, everyone has their role sort of staked out. But in practice, that often doesn't work so clearly. 
I mean, keep in mind, too, that even different than the Alfaro, this is a military mm-hmm. hierarchy. So it's a lot more rigid. I mean, Ensign Ryan doesn't necessarily report directly to Lieutenant Commander Seppel. That's his boss's boss, or maybe his boss's boss's boss. I mean, mm-hmm. is he going to feel comfortable saying, I can't do this, or I need assistance? You know, you don't know. Right. Finally, earlier visual identification of both ships was hindered by the brightly lit Kazakhstan that was positioned between the Capricorn and the Blackthorn. So this is where we come back to how bright it is. Basically, it's, it's very dark out there, and all you can see is this one brightly lit ship, and neither ship can the Capricorn and the Blackthorn can't see each other because the Kazakhstan is positioned literally right between them. So is Kazakhstan at fault for being too brightly lit, or is that just not a factor? Not, no, not necessarily. Like it's, I think it's more of, it's one of those things like we always talk about. It's not one thing. That's just one of the things that had to happen to make this happen. You know, you've got an inexperienced person at the con. You've got people relying on the radio instead of, you know, whistle communication. You've got a brightly lit ship. You've got assumptions being made. It's never one thing. And that's just one of the factors that, that happens to be at play here. And I'm probably, it's not saying it's the most important factor, but it's the one factor that if the Kazakhstan hadn't been there, those two ships see each other, they avoid each other, and we don't have a story that we're talking about. Right. But that one is purely coincidental, where some of the others are more poor training or poor bridge resource management, things like that. Whereas mm-hmm. the Kazakhstan, it's more environmental to what's going on. All right. What's the next thing we'd like to talk about? What did we get out of this? Any Did anything good come out of this tragedy? Yeah, I think um, there are a few things like with any of these NTSB or Coast Guard reports, you're always going to have the recommendations. And much like airline travel, every accident actually makes this safer because you you learn things, you you find things that you need to fix. Uh, Some of the Coast Guard recommendations include all Coast Guard officers assigned to deck duty must pass a centrally prepared written exam, basically a rules of the road before being certified for duty. So previously, you just worked that like, your commanding officer would say, yep, you're good. You can do this. Now that there would be a central test that every officer in that role would have to pass. So there's a common core of knowledge. Training standards should be reviewed and cutters should not sail until all crew have shown proficiency with emergency drills and are familiar with life-saving equipment. So this is kind of talking about those more inexperienced uh, sailors that they had on board. You shouldn't be sailing if everyone on board doesn't know what to do in an emergency, doesn't know how to use life-saving equipment, doesn't know how to help others. And I don't know, I was struck by that a little bit. It's kind of strange that you would hear the Coast Guard. You you think of someone being in the Coast Guard being very well prepared for a maritime emergency. But, you know, clearly that wasn't the case in this uh, this scenario. Yeah, I think it, that really highlights the fact that redundancy is always necessary in situations like this where... It doesn't do if only one or two people know what to do. If those people are unavailable or out of commission, what do you do now? Um, right, exactly. So the, the issue of having everyone having a general knowledge of what to do in these situations obviously seems, obviously things like this highlight it, but you know, before something like this happened, it may, maybe wasn't that big of, a, um, big of a focus point. Greater emphasis on survival equipment and swimming be placed at Coast Guard Boot Camp, which is another thing which... I would have assumed was already a major point of uh, Coast Guard boot camp would be swimming mm-hmm. and the usage of survival equipment. But that is something that the report states should be uh, emphasized more. 
And finally, a review of the life jackets that are currently issued to see why the crew had such a hard time putting them on in the water. I thought that was interesting as they were going through that. The, not a single person had used the leg straps of the life jackets, and many of the men were wearing them incorrectly. Clearly, that's something where there's a design issue with that life jacket. If you can't easily use it, it's not a great piece of safety equipment. Right. And I mean, I'm just assuming that they would have at least been trained on them in kind of a control situation. Right. Um, whereas when it actually comes time to use it in a real world situation, if it's not usable, that doesn't help very much. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's not safe if you can't use it. All right. And let's also discuss some of the uh, after action uh, recognition that happened in this incident. Multiple crewmen of the Blackthorn were recognized for their damage or for their bravery in damage control and for actions after the ship was struck. Uh, this included Chief Warrant Officer Miller, who we previously discussed, uh, along with various others. But there's one name that was noticeably absent until fairly recently um, and had played a major role in saving lives that night. His name is Seaman Apprentice William Flores. And Flores was actually a fairly young sailor. He was only one year out of boot camp at the time of the incident. However, he's not one of those that was panicked. He's not one of those that didn't know what to do. Uh, Flores was able to secure the hatch to the life jacket locker with his belt as the uh, Blackthorn capsized. So he's actually able to keep that open rather than having that heavy door swing shut. And, you know, once it's capsized, you may not be able to open it. This allowed many of his shipmates to survive and escape although Flores was ultimately a victim of the accident himself. So his actions that he took that day ended up saving multiple lives. Strangely, as I read through the uh, reports, his name isn't in there anywhere other than in the victim list. He was completely overlooked in both the Coast Guard and NTSB reports. And ultimately, it was not until January 28th, 2000, that his actions were recognized with the Coast Guard medal. Additionally, a new Sentinel-class fast response cutter was named in his honor. I find it pretty incredible that they were able to get that done. It's pretty amazing that it took that long for him to be recognized, but it sounds like he's definitely one of the heroes of that day. For sure. And I mean, I think he's 19. I mean, he's a very young, young person mm -hmm. at this time. And it definitely is interesting seeing that happen and seeing him ultimately get the recognition that he deserved for his actions. Finally, the crew of the shrimp boat, the Bayou is recognized for their rescue efforts. Obviously they played a major role in saving lives that day, the sooner you get people out of the water, the better. And then being on scene was huge. And the actions of the Capricorn's lifeboat crew was also recognized. Uh, the Capricorn launched that lifeboat and did attempt to save lives when they were able to. So now on to a few concluding thoughts and we'll kind of wrap this thing up. So kind of, this is kind of my thoughts as I was doing this, uh, the loss of the Blackthorn was a really odd story to research it's almost like reading a story about a fire department that's been burned to the ground. It's not something that should happen. It's a reminder of how dangerous even calm and clear conditions can be when working in a maritime environment. As is common with the stories that we discuss, there are examples of human failure juxtaposed with acts of bravery and sacrifice. I was particularly struck by the actions of Chief Warrant Officer Miller and Seaman Apprentice Flores. Both men took action when others around them faltered and froze. Although one man perished and one man survived, they both embodied the spirit of the United States Coast Guard's motto, which is always ready. And with that, I'll hand it over to you, Tanner, for your thoughts. Yeah, for me, so this the story overall is is a bit different than some of the stuff we've researched. It just the nature of the ship involved, and also kind of the speed at which it happens. You know, there's a, like you said, there's a lot of moving parts, things happening all at once, and it's a very congested 
area. This isn't a ship that's out by itself on the open ocean, and that contributes to why it sank. But for me, the thing that stands out is is the thing that you kind of just talked about, the contributions that are made by members of the armed forces, like we talked about uh, Seaman uh, Flores, who was, he was 18 when this when this happened. He was only 18. And like you said, you know, him jumping into action and, and doing something to save lives when other people who, in theory, had the same training and arguably more experience were unable to do that, to, to act. Mm-hmm. Um, and the contributions that are made in the armed forces by people who, outside of that context, we would see them basically as kids. Right. Um, and essentially, that's that's what they are. That's That's the people who do a lot of the um a lot of the heavy lifting when it comes to the wars that we fight is is kids. So two things really came to mind. One of them was the Wilfred Owen poem Arms and the Boy. Mm-hmm. Um, so Wilfred Owen for those unfamiliar was a British poet of the First World War. He was actually killed in the First World War. Um, it's actually one of my favorite, probably my favorite poet actually. Very very tragically close to the end of the war. He wrote a lot about that. Obviously, the context is very different. This is not a, a combat situation that we're discussing here. But the the basic idea is the same in that we have extremely young people who could be out doing other things, could have this other future ahead of them. But instead, they're in these situations where they sometimes end up giving their lives for for the country. And that's uh, that's something worth noting. So that, that kind of jumped into my head. And that's also sort of brought me to uh, to the book by Joe Kasabian, The Hooligans of Kandahar, um, in which he, he writes about some of his experiences um, in the war in Afghanistan, kind of highlighting a similar thing of, you know, at, at the time that he's writing that book, he, he's writing about himself when he was 21. And the people he's with, the soldiers he's with, compared to them, he's, he's a relatively old man, you know, because he's deployed before. He's 21. Some of these kids are... 18. And it really does highlight the fact that we have very, very young people in these situations of really, really high responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I don't think it's highlighted enough. Right. So for better or for worse, that's something that we don't talk about enough. <laughs> uh, of uh, We've got we've got very, very young people in these in these uh, high pressure situations. Right. I would definitely encourage everybody to check those out, too. Uh, Wilfred Owen is, like I said, one of my favorite poets, probably is my favorite poet. A lot of his work is very good. It's a lot of heavy topics that he tackles very well. And definitely Hooligans of Kandahar. It's a very interesting book. It's a little bit of a different book about um, experiences in Afghanistan and uh, definitely written for more of a just a regular guy on the ground perspective and some of the, the other books that you might read about those topics. But both Wilford Owen and Joe Kasabian are definitely worth your time to check out. I would definitely recommend uh, reading some of those. With that, do you have anything else you want to add on this one? I think that's all I've got to contribute here. Uh, this, was a, this was a very informative uh, episode here for me. Definitely. Yeah, I enjoyed doing this one. Uh, we appreciate all you guys listening out there. We appreciate the iTunes reviews. We appreciate the communication on Instagram through the email. Um, and uh, yeah, consider supporting the Patreon if you uh, feel so inclined. We definitely appreciate the support. And we will be talking to you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>